Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning, church. All right, I'm going to have you open three passages of Scripture, okay? Did you bring enough bookmarks? Because here we go. I want to begin this morning in Galatians chapter 5, and then we're going to be turning over to Romans chapter 5. So let's begin in Galatians 5 together as you turn in your Bibles, and then we, we begin this series this morning called Life Alive. And it is following up some series that I want to connect the dots for you. We have a very specific focus we're taking this winter and spring into the month of May. And if you've been with us, you, I want you to understand that what we've been talking about is how do we prioritize the kingdom of God over all other options, of all other offers that the world gives us? How do you and I hold on to the things that matter most and not get distracted? We began with a series through the book of Jonah. And what we wanted to see was that it's very easy for us to be self-sufficient and self-righteous. And God's way of breaking us out of that is giving us opportunities to love others rather than just simply love our own interests. And so Jonah taught us that by understanding who God is and loving those around us, we actually can break ourselves of our self-sufficiency, understand our need for grace, and love others without being self-righteous. Then we went into a series in the Revelation, found at the end of your scriptures. And in that, we, we saw how easy it is to be distracted and to be attached to the idols and deceptions of this world. But when we know who Jesus is and how he's overcoming the darkness and the evil that's in our world, and we understand who he is, we place our trust in him, and we can overcome those idols and put them away. We realize by the grace of God that he is showing us our example in Jesus. And so today we're going to begin a new series, and we're going to be looking at how he transforms us to hold on. What is God giving you and I to overcome our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency and to overcome the idols of this world and not fall in love with the deception of evil in the days in which we live? How does God shape us and transform us to do so? So we're going to be looking at a couple of different things. We're going to be looking at the gifts that God gives us to transform our lives and what shows that transformation and we're also going to look at examples in Jesus' life where he taught or demonstrated these things for us. So if I can simplify all that introduction, let me say it this way. I want to show you if it was good enough for Jesus, it ought to be good enough for us. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so we're going to see how this plays out in the Gospels and in our New Testament teachings so that we can live life alive. So having said all of that, how do you know whether you're just trying to be good or whether the Holy Spirit is transforming you? How do you know the difference between just willpower or spirit power? And I'm hoping at the end of this series and each and every week, you'll, draw, you'll walk out of here having drawn from the scripture that this is the demonstration of the spirit transforming me and this is the demonstration of me trying to transform me. And if we lead into the spirit, we will find life alive. You see, spiritual transformation does not come by worshiping rules or rule-keeping. We live in a world that if you're a good boy or a good girl, you get an attaboy or an girl, right? And if you do the right things and you're a good person, you get hall passes that other people don't get. You get to go places and experience things that others don't. Remember when you were a child and you obeyed, you got privileges. And if you didn't obey, those privileges were taken away from you. And we sometimes think in the Christian world, this is what God wants from us. He wants us to be good boys and good girls. No, he wants to change our hearts. It's not about rule worshiping or rule keeping. 
It's about trusting Christ. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts when we immerse ourselves in Jesus, not in our own ability to be good. Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, chapter 5, if you'll open that passage, Galatians 5, verse 19, you'll probably recognize this passage, but I want you to see what Paul's doing with it. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Uh, Starting in verse 19, I'm sorry. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. People living in the acts of the flesh are demonstrating they've not been transformed in their spirit. They're holding on to the deceptions of the world. They're holding on to their own self-sufficiency and their own self-righteousness. But, verse 22, but the fruit of the spirit. So he compares the acts of the flesh with the acts of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit, knowing that he's transformed us, we begin to see love, joy, peace, forbearance, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. Paul just said it's not in rule-keeping that we're transformed. It's in the immersion into who Jesus Christ is by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit will produce life in us. It's life alive. So today I I have a very simple message, and it's really a doctrinal message. It's the foundational piece of this whole series, and I'm a little bit worried it won't be exciting I'm a little bit worried after the big buzz of revelation that you're all going to come in here and go, I knew that. Yeah, but there's a difference between knowing it and living it. And this is what we want, right? To let the truth of the scripture transform our hearts. But I will tell you that this series will have more impact on your daily walk than the revelation series ever could. But what it's going to take is our hearts, our heads, and our hands uniting to allow Christ to work in us, to allow the Holy Spirit to transform us. So today I want to look at joy. I know love is the first first fruit of the Spirit, but to be honest with you, my theory is that love is the umbrella that covers all the growth of the others. That is our love for God and God's love for us that allows this to happen. It's what birthed us. So today we begin with joy and what joy looks like. I want to begin with making this simple point as we think this passage through together with Romans chapter 5. The joy of the Lord is given... It's not generated. Joy is not a disposition we choose. Joy is a gift we receive. It's not something we generate by positive thinking and happy smiles and fake promises. Joy actually comes by the Holy Spirit indwelling us and inspiring us and speaking to us and bringing any circumstance under the sovereignty of God. So joy is beautiful. I want you to know every other religion in the world, with the exception of Christianity, is this, has this premise. If you live as you should, God will accept you. Every world religion has some format of this. If you do the right things, God will do the right things for and to you. Christianity is the only alternative religion. And what it says is if you accept what God has done for you, then you will live the right way. Do you get it? One side says, do the right things and God will be good to you. Christianity says, God has been good to you. Accept that through Jesus Christ by faith. And then you will begin to live differently. 
And your reason for living differently will not be obligation. It'll be a natural responsiveness to the goodness of God. Let's look at Romans chapter 5 if you haven't turned back over to that. We're going to begin in verse 1. And this is the theological chunk. This is the roast, right? Sunday afternoon, roast, potatoes, and a long nap. Can I have an amen? All right, I'm going to give you the roast now. Don't sleep yet, though. All right, promise? You didn't promise. Okay, so here we go anyway. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, pause, we don't justify ourselves. We have been justified because we believe in Jesus. He does the justifying. Continue. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't manufacture peace. Our reconciliation with God comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. We receive it. Verse 2. Through him, have you noticed this referencing back to Jesus over and over? I sometimes read scripture so quickly, I don't actually get to hear what it says. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We don't earn our status. It's been given to us. God does not love us more than anybody else, but he does love us as much as anybody else. God does not call you his daughter, and he does not call me his son because I am more unique and special than anybody else. He does it through the blood of Jesus Christ and his love for all of us. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Where does our joy? The word rejoice is the fruit of the Spirit. The ability to have joy, and not only to have joy, but to express joy, is a gift that God gives us. And it says right here in this text, where it comes from is our hope in who Jesus is and what he's done. It doesn't come in our control. It's not generated by us. It's received. Let's continue a little more quickly in verses 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, I love that expression. That's, that's almost like looky, looky. Remember when you were a little kid and someone said, looky, looky, and you snapped your head around real quick to be like, what? He's on fire. Right here, Paul says in verse 9, since and therefore, we have now been justified. Paul saying, if that's all true and we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, Christianity is more than being saved. It's actually living a life alive. It's experiencing it now. Verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So joy is received, but can we be honest? I hope we can in church, but can we be honest with each other? Joy is a tough commodity to find, isn't it? Life takes joy away from us. We, we thrive in happiness, even if it's temporary. But to receive joy means it requires some, some effort. It requires some work. I was yesterday on the exercise bike, and I was watching a documentary. And this, in this documentary, someone quoted this passage, and it struck me. It's like, I need that in my sermon. So it won't appear on the screen. I want you to listen, though, to Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a rich passage. When joy is missing, I know where the filling station is. 
When joy is hard to find, I know where to go get it. It's not in my mind. It's not in my experiences. It's not in my understanding. It's in my God. And I remind myself of my hope in Christ. And God brings joy. You see, the gospel of King Jesus, sent by God to save us from our sins, to introduce the new coming kingdom on that day, to face our rebellion, to, to come incarnated, to, be, to demonstrate the glory through the miracles and the teaching, to endure the crucifixion, to rise powerfully in the resurrection, to ascend gloriously back to the Father, to return one day to bring a new heaven and a new earth and exact judgment on sin and those who are loyal to sin and to all who are loyal to him to receive them into his kingdom. The gospel message is not just salvation, it's kingdom, it's King Jesus, it's hope, it's promise. The joy of the Lord is not get or is given, it's not generated. So receive it. Don't just think about it. Receive it and watch what God fills you with. The second point I want to make this morning is the joy of the Lord is not circumstantial. I feel it's necessary right now as a teacher to say that sometimes we define things by what they are and sometimes you define things by what they are not. And what I want you to understand is that the joy of the Lord is not circumstantial. You see, happiness is found only when you have control. Happiness is when you have control over something and that makes you feel good or it provides comfort or it provides ease. And even if someone gives you a gift and it makes you happy, it's because they gave you the gift, right? And the gift is now in whose control? It's in yours. Joy is a different thing. Joy is found when you're not in control, when the circumstances are not easy and comfortable and satisfying. But you know who has control when you don't. Isn't that what we got from the Revelation series? That when this, this world is not going to get lighter, it's going to get darker. This world's going to become more deadly and more damaging and more mean. That's a positive image, isn't it? It isn't until you realize that at the end of it, he will wipe every tear. The light will come. It will be forever and the darkness will be thrown away. Then we endure because we don't have to be happy this moment. We can have joy in every moment because of what our hope is in. So where does this joy come from? It's a, a surprising answer. If you look at the word rejoice in those first 11 verses of Romans 5, you're going to notice a trend. Let me show you the trend. Verse 3, <clears throat> we rejoice in our suffering. What? That, that's counterintuitive. That's close to illogical. How do you find this sense of peace and hope when you're suffering? Because as James said, we count it all joy when we experience trials and challenges and difficulties. Why? Because our hope is in the Lord and we know that even this will pass. No suffering lasts forever. Yet Christ does. And we also know from the scriptures that God uses our suffering to refine us, to focus us, and to strip away our idols. To take away those things we most need. There's a quote I want you to listen to, Corey Ten Boom, who was a prisoner of war in World War II. She was in a concentration camp. She saw her father, her brother, and her sister all die because she brought in Jewish people into her home and protected them. And she went to a concentration camp, and she traveled the world after she was released. This tiny little frail woman with a strong soul went around lecturing, and she had a famous quote, and I love her quote. Think about if this isn't the world we live in. She said, look around you and you will be distressed. 
Look within yourself and you will be depressed. Look at Jesus and you find rest. That's a good word. I should probably quit here. It doesn't get any better, but we're going to continue on. Right? There is joy that Jesus delivers to us when we suffer for the kingdom and we hold on. Verse 4, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. God does not waste our suffering. And we can have joy to know that in our worst moments, God is somehow and in some way going to redeem that for his glory. He uses evil to actually show how good he is, even when we would choose another method. Look with me at verse 11. And we also rejoice, we find joy in God. I know this for certain. When I am susceptible to circumstances, when I'm at risk over finances and health and friendship and attitudes and respect, when those things can shake my world and they can, I know my God is not susceptible to circumstances. I know that his truth is not optional and it's not conditional. I know when God says something is true, it is always true. When God says something is evil, it is always evil. It's not conditional, it's not cultural, it's not circumstantial. And I can hold out the hope when I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to do next, I know who does. When I know I don't have the power to do what I'm supposed to do next, I know who gives me the power, the ability, and the strength. It's not about my willpower, it's about my choice. And our hope is in God himself, not in the church, not in our religious stamina, not in what people think of us because we come here once a week or twice a week and we gather in groups. It's actually our hopes in him. Look at verse three. This is what we hope for. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Why suffer for the kingdom? Why honor a God who sometimes seemingly doesn't honor us? Because when we do, we are strengthened in our faith. And when we're strengthened in our faith, we are able to stand up to those threats to our lives and our souls. And we stand up not only with character, but we have endurance. And when we go through this, we gain hope. God is filling us when we feel like we're being emptied. And he fills us with what we never could produce ourselves. And I love verse five. When you have hope in the Lord, nothing can shame you. Nothing can entice you. Nothing will draw you away from him. The joy of the Lord is given. It's not generated. It's not confined into circumstance. And lastly, the joy of the Lord comes from the working out of the gospel of grace. It's centering our lives on Jesus. Oh, that seems like something a preacher would say, right? And it seems vague enough that it sounds true, but you have no idea what it means. It's centering our lives on the gospel. It's living gospel-centric lives. It's each and every day awaking to the fact that the circumstances of today could be harsh or simple. At the end of the day, my God is sovereign. My God is in control and my God is for me. And he is speaking to me through his word and through friendships. He's speaking to me in what's going on around. He is building character so I am unashamed to stand for the sake of the gospel. Turn with me to John chapter 16, if you will. And just briefly, I wanna take you into a moment in the life of Jesus' ministry. John chapter 16, let me, let me set the context for this. 
John chapter 14 through John chapter 17 is one of the richest passages of scripture because it's Jesus' words to his disciples on the way to his death. It even includes a prayer in John 17 where he prays for the kind of people he desires us to be. He's preparing his disciples. Jesus knows what's gonna happen soon after midnight. They don't. So he begins to share with them. They've gathered for the Last Supper. Jesus has washed their feet. Over the next 20 hours, they're going to experience the most devastating thing that would ever happen to them in their lifetime, including their own death. He washes their feet. They break bread. They pass the, the cup of wine. They have the Lord's Supper. He tells them that one of them is going to betray them, and Judas is sent out to do it. Jesus commissioned Judas to betray him. And Judas went after his soul's desire, and there he went. Jesus announces that now his glorification will be known. He says, you think you know me. You're going to see the real me in just a few hours. But then he said to them, you're going to look for me and you're not going to find me. And then you'll look for me again and you'll find me. And they were honestly perplexed. They sang a song. They got up. They left the city. They walked down through the valley, probably a 45-minute to an hour walk. They went up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus began to pray and they fell asleep. On the way to the garden, John chapter 16, verse 19, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is the time of your grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Now you would think if Jesus was explaining what he meant, it wouldn't be this complicated, right? So Jesus uses a picture to explain to them that the joy of the Lord comes from thinking about what the gospel is about to do. He's obviously talking to this group of men on the way to the garden. He's telling them, it's going to get rough. I am going to die. And then when you think it's all over and you're, you've spent that Saturday in heartbreak, Sunday's going to come. And I'm going to appear again and then you're going to see me. And what was once the world's joy will become your joy. And it will be a joy that can never be taken from you. But is that circumstantial? Isn't the second point of our teaching today that, ha that joy is everywhere and happiness is only in the circumstances? Is, is Jesus saying, your joy is going to come back when everything works out? It didn't, did it? To every single one of these disciples, as far as we know, and history is recorded, every single one of these suffered to the point of death for the gospel. Yet what did they never lose? They never lost their joy. You see, with God, circumstances don't have to be perfect. They just have to be his. And we find joy. So Jesus breaks right to it. He says, joy is like a child coming to a woman in labor, says the man. Right? Ladies, are you with me? You see, in this midst, Jesus brings out a, a point here. In natural childbirth, a woman does not have control over the pain or the timing of the child. Birth in and of itself is not circumstantial. You can't control it. I remember the words out of my wife's mouth when the labor pains hit her hard with our first child. She said, not today. It was that day. 
She had no control over it. She couldn't control the amount of pain. Now, I know today we live in a world with epidurals and there's medicine that can control all that and thank God for that. But when Jesus gave this illustration in his day, a woman would go through a tunnel of anguish and pain and turmoil to deliver a child. And many, many women died giving birth. This illustration rocked the disciples' mind. You are about to go through the pain, the labor of producing the joy that will change your life. And beautifully, Jesus says, as creator God, he says, and then when that woman gives birth to that child and that child comes to life, the anguish, the grief, that tunnel of pain is quickly forgotten for the joy that she has received. And we say the birth, the gift of life is a beautiful gift, isn't it? And Jesus said, I'm going to bring joy, but it is going to come to you and it's going to be well-earned. It's going to be to be hard, it's going to be difficult. There's going to be this tunnel of darkness that you think you may never escape, and then you're going to blow out the other side, man. You're going to come into the light of the gospel message, and you're going to realize he kept every promise he ever gave. See, the revelation given to John shows us the same pathway. Isn't that what he said to the church? Yes, it's going to be difficult. Some of you will give your lives. You will be tested. You will be excommunicated. You will be punished. You will be, called, you will be made to be shamed. You will be treated like you're not even human, but that one day Jesus is going to return and the king is going to come bringing the new heaven and the new earth and every single tear will be wiped away. It will be like the gift of child. You will receive everything you ever hoped and all the anguish will be forgotten in comparison to holding new life. This is why we have a Sunday faith in a Saturday world. Because we believe that Christ brings us a joy. So what does this mean to us? Very quickly, it means this. We need to understand each and every day of our life that the gospel is not something we say we believe in. The gospel is something we bet our lives on. You can believe that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. You can believe that he died on the cross and you can believe that he died for the sins of the world and you can believe that he was resurrected three days later and you can believe that he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And I don't mean to be a jerk, but let's be honest with each other this morning. Satan believes everything you believe. It does not change a single moment of his existence. We are not just to believe the gospel. We are to give our lives into it, to experience it, to trust it, to hold on in the good, the bad, and the comfortable. Because the the demons know who Jesus is and they shudder at the thought, but they do not give themselves to him by faith. They do not trust his goodness. They do not trust what he does. Listen to Romans chapter 14, verse 17. The kingdom of God is not meat or drink. This would have been a celebration. Can I paraphrase this for us right now to help you and me understand what we're talking about? The kingdom of God is not a perpetual party. It's not a perpetual last night of camp, sitting around the campfire singing Kumbaya. Sometimes the kingdom of God is a Monday morning where you have to get up and go to work and you don't want to. It's when you have to come home and there's not peace in the home and there's a conflict and you have to work through it. Sometimes the kingdom of God is working with people who don't understand the value of trusting and loving each other and serving each other and we get angry and bitter and we fight. It is not a perpetual party, but it is righteousness, peace, and joy. How? Through the Holy Spirit. That Jesus wants to deliver to you a new kingdom inside of you so you can live it and not just believe in it. 
you can experience it. The kingdom of God is like a man who discovers a treasure buried in a field. And when he discovers, he sells all he has and he goes with joy. How do you know whether you're just trying to be good or whether or not the Holy Spirit is transforming your life? It's when you sell everything of value to receive all the value of the gospel. It's when you commit simply to living a life alive. Dr. Timothy Keller on this passage says the killer dropped your mic line for me. He said, Jesus is the woman. He went through the labor. He went through the tunnel of anguish. He went through the dark night of the soul. Why? So he could deliver all of us to the Father, the gift of our lives at the cost of his. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He delivered us at his own pain, at his own expense. Spiritual transformation does not come because we worship what good rule keepers we are. It's nothing about that. It's when we focus and immerse ourselves and we bet our lives on the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel, the Holy Spirit begins to work in us to create us new. And he brings joy where there is no joy. And that joy is our hope. And our hope is in God himself for all he's done for us. I'd like to give you a little bit of homework. First of all, I'd like to engage your head. I'd like you to think this week with me on these things. Immerse your mind daily in the truth of the gospel. Don't just say, ah, the gospel is I'm saved for my sin. No, actually, spend some time in the word this week. What is the good news of Jesus? Focus your mind on that. Meditate on that, on the goodness of God, on the goodness of Christ, on the goodness of the Holy Spirit. Count it all joy, no matter what you face this week, because the gospel will save you over and over and over again. And I'd like to engage your heart. When you focus your mind on the gospel, bow your knee before the one who brought it to you. Spend each and every moment thinking, how can I project the truth of the gospel into the lives of those around me as it flows from me? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our hope. The joy of the Lord is our gift. Let's live deeply lives that are alive in Christ. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.